All right. Now, moving on to cultural Marxism, Paul. Yes. And why am I going to talk about this? Because I see it cropping up in different articles and different news items from time to time. So I'm going to set the scene with some commentary about it. So Holly Hughes to start with. Turns out Marxists don't like being called Marxists, apparently, but we do know that in the education department there is a very strong left-wing bent, and anyone that denies that either doesn't have kids at school or aren't seeing what's happening, even with the curriculum. The curriculum is moving so far to the left these days. We know that it's all John Keynes, if not Marxism, rather than Adam Smith. There we go. So Marxism, John Keynes, Adam Smith... I'm absolutely prepared to bet that she could not define Marxism at all. Or the theories of Adam Smith and in, in, in how they've been no. bastardised. And what was the other one that she mentioned there? Anyway, I think she's a Liberal senator in Victoria. So yep. that's Holly Hughes. Now, another place where this has come up, let me just grab this clip, is this is the new... One night, United Australia Party. Oh, this, their single senator? Yes, Senator Babbitt. Babbitt? Mm-hmm. Babbitt? Another Victorian. Let's go with Bobbitt. What are you doing in Victoria? Okay. <laughs> so this, I'm not sure. I got a feeling this was his maiden speech. So uh, let's have a listen to this one as well. We are witnessing the steady decline of our traditional institutions, such as family, marriage, religion, the sanctity of life, patriotism, borders and education, to name a few. This is not an accident, but rather by design. Radical Marxist ideology has been marching through our institutions for some time. Terms like white privilege and gender fluidity have now become commonplace. Marxists see the world as being inherently unequal They seek to address this apparent inequality by tearing down the very fabric of our civilization so that it may be rebuilt in their Fawkes utopian vision. A vision which would seek to destroy the very systems that have made us one of the greatest countries in the world and turn us into a shadow of our former selves. A nation which bows to the whim of big government, where the individual is snuffed out in favour of collectivist ideology where freedom of speech, thought and religion... Oh, look, he Sorry, just... Is he, he just talking about the Liberal Party? He just goes, he goes on and on. <laughs> yeah, thank you for saving me. Like, it, it must be wrong to laugh at a person like that, but I can't find it in my heart to to give him any credit for that. No. It, it, it went, like, especially when he... You know, went for the and tear through the very fabric of society. You know, it's just like, did you just get out that that out of rhetoric one hundred and one? You know? Yes, yeah. He was trying to paint a picture. He wasn't convincing me. I don't know if he's convinced others, but yeah, he said radical Marxists have taken over our institutions and will seek to tear down the very fabric of Australia so that it may be rebuilt in their Fawkes utopian vision, <laughs> which, of course, I, the person who wrote it wrote the French oh, word faux, yes. <laughs> F-A-U-X, F-A-U-X, French yep. for fake. But no. they didn't run that past him. So, 
Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Jungle Juice, straight yeah. from the military playbook. Yeah. So they are bad and we are good. Yeah. That's all you need to know. And I'll just put up this is sort of an internet meme I saw, which again, just Marxism thrown into climate hysteria. It's it's an iceberg with the with the out of the water tip being called climate hysteria and the under the water majority of the iceberg being called Marxism. Like just they're really throwing it in in different areas, I find. If you it's one of those things, you know how if you say your car, you need new tires, all of a sudden you start seeing advertisements for car tires. Mm-hmm. And mm. you just yeah, it's one of those things that when you're sort of attuned to it, it seems to pop up in a lot of places. So I'm seeing it in lots of places. And, mm. yeah, this this throwing the word of Marx out as an insult and a boogeyman and this group are Marxist, so you better watch out. I'm, I do wonder if they think that communist just isn't doesn't have the same bite anymore, you know. Mm. Like they used to call people socialists and now socialists are kind of okay and so we called them communists and now communists are kind of okay and so we better call them Marxists because that's even worse. Well, I think they know they can't get away with communist because it's a little bit like what I said with China that people refer to China now as an authoritarian regime mm. rather than a communist one because people go, oh, hang on a minute, there's, there's all these billionaires in China and they've got a market economy. It doesn't look that communist to me. So I think they're playing on the fact that it's difficult to accuse Bill Shorten of being a communist. And people go, well, that doesn't sound right. But if accuse him of being a Marxist, they go, oh, jeez, <laughs> maybe he is. Not sure one is. Sounds bad. Yeah, well, because you can't define it because you know, mm. I don't know, like Marx was bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really worry with these kind of, this kind of like and the left does it too. And I browse imager occasionally for my sins and there's a lot of just kind of basically name calling. Like, you know, making jokes at Trump's expense or making jokes at Hillbilly's expenses or, you know, and it's, you know, the right has basically realised that, oh, there's, the, there's these things called memes and we can use them to get our ideas out and make people laugh and, that, and therefore they spread. And they don't have to um, be true. Yeah, they don't have to be, you know, it, it doesn't have to mean anything, you know, like you could make the same image with the top caption being Foucault's pendulum and the bottom being God, mm-hmm. you know, it would mean as much. Mm. Well pronounced, Foucault, by the way, because we're going to be talking about French and German philosophers. All righty. And I thought... <laughs> I've just bagged this one nation senator for not pronouncing foe correctly. I better look up I better look up the pronunciations oh. here. So yeah, so I'm glad um, you I gave you a heads up there. Yeah, so <laughs> Michel Foucault, we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be talking about an Italian guy, G R A M S C I, which I would have said Gramsci, but I looked it up and it's Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci. He's an Italian guy. Then there's Friedrich Nietzsche. 
Nietzsche. So Nietzsche or Nietzsche? I think it's Nietzsche because when I went on yeah. Google how to pronounce, so you've, you would have seen it written, dear listener, N-I-E-T-Z-S-C-H-E. And I'd never bothered to sort of – I've read it lots of times but never really listened to people because I don't listen to Jordan Peterson, I guess, but Nietzsche apparently. Hmm. So Friedrich yeah. Nietzsche. And there's another guy, Gilles Deleuze, French one. So – I'll do my best to mangle the French language, which I'm no expert in, as we work our way yeah. through these French and German philosophers. Like mm. <laughs> so the question is, we need to know a little bit about Marx and what he actually said to determine whether something is Marxist. For starters, before we even Wild discuss idea. whether it's good or bad. So there was an article here from The Conversation, a guy, Christopher Pollard, teaches philosophy and sociology at Deakin University. His research is on 20th century European philosophy and social theory. So he sounds qualified enough to make a few comments. I'm just going to paraphrase some of the things he says. Marx was writing when mid-Victorian capitalism was at its Dickensian worst, analysing how the new industrialism was causing radical social upheaval and severe urban poverty. Hmm. And this is important, actually, when you're thinking about Marx, is it was that Dickensian type of era that he was seeing and experiencing. It was a, some people were in a terrible state. So I'm just reading a little bit from my Ken and Malik book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, page 234. So this was Engels, Marx's colleague, was writing about a place called Little Island which was a slum in Manchester. And he writes, The cottages are old, dirty, and of the smallest sort. The streets uneven, fall into ruts, and in part without drains or pavement. Masses of refuse, offal, and sickening filth lie among standing pools in all directions. The atmosphere mm. is poisoned by the effluvia from these and laden and darkened by the smoke of a dozen tall factory chimneys. A horde of ragged women and children swarm about here, as filthy as the swine that thrive upon the garbage heaps and in the puddles. The race that lives in these ruinous cottages behind broken windows, mended with oilskin, sprung doors and rotten doorposts, or in dark wet cellars, in measureless filth and stench, in this atmosphere penned in as if with a purpose, this race must really have reached the lowest stage of humanity. This is the impression and the line of thought which the exterior of this district forces upon the beholder. There you go. This race must really have reached the lowest stage of humanity. Things were bad. Good, good words like effluvia. Yes. You know, in modern writing, do you? No, it's you don't. Not there. Yeah, but you know, this was a low point in human history. And mm, mm. this was, you know, people in, you know, in terms of medieval England, at least people were providing for themselves in, as a peasant in, in land owned by a lord. You would rather be in that situation than, than in this terrible a place like Little Island in Manchester. Um, mm, mm. So it was a dark point in human history that, Marx was dealing with, and he's looking at capitalism as 
quite rightly, having caused this situation. So always bear that in mind with him. Going back to this article by this guy uh, about Marx, his primary interest wasn't simply capitalism. It was human existence and our potential. His enduring philosophical contribution is an insightful, historically grounded perspective on human beings and industrial society. Marx observed capitalism wasn't only an economic system by which we produced food, clothing and shelter. It was also bound up with a system of social relations. Work structured people's lives and opportunities in different ways depending on their role in the production process. Most people were either part of the owning class or the working class. The interests of these classes were fundamentally opposed, which led inevitably to conflict between them. Hmm. On the basis of this, Marx predicted the inevitable collapse of capitalism leading to equally inevitable working class revolution. So, look, Marx looked at class and said, we've got an owning class and a working class, their interests conflict and they're in opposition. Mm. You can't argue with, with yeah. what Marx was was saying there. And now, he's made the prediction of really the... Hasn't, sorry, it really hasn't fundamentally changed. No. And he's made the prediction of an inevitable collapse of capitalism. Well, we're yet to see whether that plays out or not, but he's you know, saying that eventually the working class will revolt. He said, Marx argued social change is driven by the tension created with an existing social order through technological and organisational innovations in production. Technology-driven changes in production make new social forms possible such that old social forms and classes become outmoded and displaced by new ones. Once the dominant class were the land-owning lords, but the new industrial system produced a new dominant class, the capitalists. And he said, he sort of philosophically says that the conditions under which people live deeply shape the way they see and understand the world. As Marx put it, Men make their own history, but they do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves. Individuals mm. and groups are situated in social contexts inherited from the past which limit what they can do. So we're victims of our circumstances. Yeah, and but, I mean, keep in mind as well, you know, Marx was writing in the time and, you know, Dickens and other commentators at the time, there is this rising middle class, as, as he kind of talks about, where that has lots of money because they are traders, they are factory owners, and there are like whole books, like the etiquette book publishing industry is a thing because their sons and daughters are mixing in the society own, you know, that, that formerly was dominated like exclusively by people who had titles back to the 12th century and suddenly there's all these up and coming who knows Merchant where they've come from mm. but now they're like they've bought that the estate next door mm. we can't be having that mm. the only way that the upper class could frown on that was basically by putting them down by laughing at their manners, mm. and so the, lo the the lower the the merchant class taught themselves manners really quickly. Right. Yep. 
I really, I really also want to say, you know, Jungle Juice here has said, I've come to realize that capitalism is the root of all evil, and the realization of being a foot soldier for the ruling class is you know, he's unhappy with that. Mm. Well, yeah, unhappy with that. And I, I would reassure you there, you know, like as Marx is kind of saying, seeing this is not because either you had a choice on it. No, you're lumped with or, it. You are, yeah. Yeah or, yeah, or or necessarily that doing that, you know, there is... Well, well, but it's a realisation when you're being screwed is you could go, you. So I think maybe Jungle Juice Jungle is going, yeah. holy shit, yeah. I'm being screwed. It's certainly, it's certainly... Maybe. Like, you know, I don't know if he's actually, you know, quelled any riots in manly or something like that but you know mm. <laughs> the i i i do think that you know and i i have good friends and i know a lot of military and ex-military people and all of them have gone into that service for the right reasons they have wanted to serve their country and they've wanted to try and do the right thing doesn't mean you're supporting the capitalists just means you're trying to you know do the right thing and part of the the part of the the goal, noble goal of this Trevor this Trevor is to give people that broader perspective. That's what we're aiming for here. I'll keep going. So yes. Marx's concept <laughs> of ideology introduced an innovative way to critique how dominant beliefs and practices, commonly taken to be for the good of all, actually reflect the interests and reinforce the power of the ruling class. For Marx, beliefs in philosophy, culture, and economics often function to rationalise unfair advantages and privileges as natural when, in fact, they are not. So he was not saying this is a conspiracy of the ruling class. Rather, it's because people are raised and learn how to think within a given social order. Through this, the views that seem eminently rational rather conveniently tend to uphold the distribution of power and wealth as they are. So yeah. the people in charge who are in charge of the major institutions in our society, naturally have those institutions reflect their beliefs and ideals, which are naturally in their interests. And that was one of the concepts that Marx mm. recognised. Which is why we should be especially wary of someone like Peter Dutton or John Howard telling us that they they want to keep the negative gearing, gearing rules because they're trying to support the, the the mum and dad investors or the little people. You know? mm. so, so some of these ideas, like sort of this this class battle and this idea of of the ideology of the ruling class naturally being maintained, you know, we might have thought some of you might think, well, of course that's the case, but this was sort of new thinking. So Marx was a, a thinker in these sorts of things that people hadn't necessarily been thinking about before. So so that was that article and a little bit more on, so that was Marx and now Marxism. So you would think that Marxism should be a reflection of Marx, but maybe not necessarily the case. This is where things no. get hairy and vague. So under Wikipedia for Marxism, it's a method of socioeconomic analysis that uses a materialistic, materialist interpretation 
of historical development to understand class relations and social conflict. Marxism has developed over time into various branches and schools of thought. Currently, no single definitive Marxist theory exists. So that's a good point to understand when Holly Hughes accuses people of being Marxist or anybody that you're talking to, you know, at a dinner party and the topic turns turns to Marxism, you really need to say, well, what do you mean by Marxism? What particular branch of Marxism are you referring to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there are different schools that we're going to sort of get into here. That might be something for Jungle Juice to use when people call him for a a communist, (laughs) for a socialist, for, no, call a communist, like for suggesting that people might actually be possible to be, you know, being sustainable. Ask them, which school of communism do you mean? Yes. See what they do. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So Marxism seeks to explain social phenomena within any given society by analysing the economic activities. It assumes that the form of economic organisation and the mode of production influences all other social phenomena, including political institutions and cultural systems and ideologies. So Marx says... Look at the economic organisation. How is the mode of production organised? And that will have a huge effect on the rest of society. He says, as forces of production improve, things like technology, existing forms of organising become obsolete and hinder further progress and thus begins an era of social revolution. So, you know, we're seeing that in America, for example. So production has moved in terms of manufacturing and in Australia as well, offshore. So Mm. you've got that rust belt that was a force of production that no longer has a role. And and they're beginning an era of social revolution, I would submit, (laughs) in terms of voting for Trump was an act of revolution. Okay, I, I'm. This is. I'm interested by this, uh, this idea. Mm. I do think there are probably a number of reasons that get conflated into, like you know, there are a number of reasons that people voted for Trump. Some mm. people have realised that those were bad. Some people are just sticking to them. But I definitely. So I definitely agree with the point that they. Firstly, those people wanted to hold on to a a mode of life where we just produced vehicles in the way that we always used to. That may be doing a little bit of a disservice, but you know, I don't think that's unfair. And but, but they, they, they they needed to sell their labour. And the opportunity to sell their labour was taken away from them with no alternative. Like if people yeah, had said this- to them, guess what, we're not making cars anymore, but go down the factory down the road and make solar panels, they would have been fine, like provided yeah. I can sell my labour and and support myself. But yeah. that was withdrawn. 
Well, and, and you know, don't forget that Detroit also, you know, in that area had a a big crisis in the seventies as well, when the you know the, the classic American car was this massive gas guzzler, and the Japanese imports just absolutely took them took them by by surprise because people wanted cheap economical cars because it was also the the kind of the seventies fuel crisis. But I so I, I if I'm following your point there, then you know they have seen that economic change in their circumstances not necess- and, yeah not necessarily well, like the economics of the the capital that has moved those jobs overseas mm. so they and therefore those people have decided to rebel and they've rebelled against the both the go- the, the government that they think has enacted those policies or allowed this to occur and that was in that that was formed into Hillary Clinton in that particular they were revolting against a system because that and they saw Trump as being outside of the system so that that was the kind of the, the revolutionary part of their action but I don't think they necessarily understood things they were just angry and lashing out and said well this is Not working for me. I'm, I'm voting for something revolutionary, which they saw Trump as being. Well, because this is where I think we overlap in motives. Because I think there's also you know that one of the classic things that capital does. It's that cartoon of the king sort of facing an ab- angry mob of people holding pitchforks and tor- and torches. And his advisor says, oh, don't worry, sire. All you need to do is just tell the, the, the pitchfork people that the torch people want them to take <laughs> the pitchfork away from them. Yes. The, those yeah. people were convinced that the Mexicans, the Chinese, the anyone else had stolen their jobs when they hadn't stolen them. The companies had given them away. Yes. And... Strange, and, and this sort of follows the the deunionizing process of the government in the, you know of Reaganism in the eighties, which really worked to to break up a lot of the power of the unions, which could otherwise had sort of organized the workers to say, "Hang mm. on, no, it's not the it's not the fault of." some people over there it's the fault of the ford company and we're going to pick at its office until we get change Mm. but where i think this also intersects is that that racist view also works for a bunch of you know a sub a subset of those people who are also racist Mm. and trump is racist He's quite obviously racist. He's quite obviously sexist, and he makes you know makes it a virtue. And so that appealed to a another set of people who are who were were f- happy that finally they didn't have to put up with actually being nice to people for a change, and they could just be sexist and racist mm. you know, as mm. they wanted to. Mm. Yep, I'll so, just go anyway. on a bit more. Uh, Engels, who was Marx's sort of co-writer on different things. 
did not support the use of the term Marxism to describe either Marx or his own views. He claimed that the term was being abusively used as a rhetorical qualifier by those attempting to cast themselves as the real followers of Marx while casting right. others into different terms. In, 1980, in 1882, Engels claimed that Marx had criticised Marx had criticised self-proclaimed Marxist Paul Lafargue by arguing that if Lafargue's views were considered Marxist, then, quote, one thing is certain, and that is I am not a Marxist. <laughs> so Marx was saying, if this guy says he's a Marxist, then I'm not a Marxist. So, so if somebody says, what sort of Marxist are you? You could say, well, I'm the sort of Marxist who doesn't believe in calling people Marxist. Because Marx, mm. Marx himself <laughs> didn't believe in it. You could, yeah. you, you could say, I'm, I'm not a Lafargian Marxist. Yes. <laughs> Right. Let me, just, let me just scoot on a bit. Yeah, I've mentioned before that for Marx, it was about the basically society, all constituent features of society, social class, political pyramid, ideologies, are assumed to stem from the economic activity. So that's a big part for Marx is how is our economy structured? That will then determine a lot of our other factors of our society. And mm. and he says it is a little bit reflexive, so in that the base gives rise to the superstructure, the newly formed social organisations can then act again upon the base and the superstructure. So, yes, the economy and the means of production creates lots of these other institutions. There is some interplay going back the other way to some extent. I want to skip through a little bit of... so. Marx believed that the capitalist bourgeoisie and their economists were promoting what he saw as the lie that the interests of the capitalist and the worker are on this are one and the same. So he emphasizes the the conflict between the two classes. And in pre-capitalist economies, exploitation of the worker was achieved via physical coercion. Under the capitalist mode of production, those results are more subtly achieved because workers do not own the means of production and must voluntarily enter into an exploitive work relationship with a capitalist in order to earn the necessities of life. The workers' entry into such employment is voluntary in that they choose which capitalist to work for. However, the worker must work or starve. Thus, exploitation is inevitable. And the voluntary nature of a worker participating in a capitalist society is illusionary, illusory. I mean, mm. in ancient times, people worked their fields and did their stuff on their farms and were largely self-sufficient. If you wanted to do stuff, wanted them to do stuff for you, you had to either convince them through force or through payment of some extra means because people wouldn't necessarily want to go anywhere if they didn't have to. But when you don't own yeah. property... You don't own a self-sustaining farm. All you have is your labour to sell. Then you are at the mercy of the system, and you you can't really say no. You have to participate in it. That's yep. a Marxist theory. Can't argue with it. Oh, I guess the one little caveat that I have there is that it is like. It, 
short of basically kind of almost getting to just hunter gatherers where no one actually owns any property no one can keep someone out of anywhere and you basically share the the good and the bad the it's hard to see a situation if you want to like yeah look at it from the point of view of a, a someone must labor or starve then that's kind of almost true everywhere you know so it's hard to imagine short of sort of did, you know yeah. manna growing on yeah. trees and well, did our indigenous infinite quantities of power did our indigenous brothers and sisters have to labor or starve for i i would argue in some ways that they actually did in mm. that they that a person that was sent out from the tribe would almost certainly die mm. because they could not hunt enough and gather enough to to make a living the the tribe could do that mm. and but you know all I'm kind of like it's mm. what's the word I'm looking for it is a situation which is impossible to disprove until we have a society where there are robots to do all of the menial work and you know everything and everyone basically has food and all of the necessi the necessities of life mm -hmm. provided for but i you know like that's you know it's one, not well, well, one of the things okay. one of the things that marx yeah. talks about is the alienation of work so in previous societies yeah. You might be just a peasant on a lord's farm. You'd have your own little patch where you are producing your own food for yourself, and some of it goes to the lord. And occasionally, you're required to do some certain things. But or you might be some craftsman working, you know, as a smithy or you know, as a as a craftsperson of something. But people were essentially their work or their labour was intimately connected with their with their lives in a in a relatively pleasant way. It was, it was work done in the area they lived, and it had to be sustainable. And, and as opposed to the work that they perform in the capitalist wage sense, there's a they're disassociated from it. The widget comes along the production line. They whack a nail into it, and the widget moves down the production line, and they just do it endlessly. And it might be. <laughs> All sorts of things. Yeah. So this this was part of what he was recognising as the change that had taken place because people had no ownership of what they were doing. They were alienated from it. So yeah, yeah. And and I was going to approach that idea from a, a a different different direction, which would be that you know in those times you could also say that say a you know a welsh crofter probably could could grow about 80% of their stuff and maybe they would trade it mm. with the smith to get a new plowshare or the you know wheelwright to make a new wagon wheel or things like that but by and large you know both they had they they could directly control production of most of their their income that fed them and kept them going and 
there was no uncertainty about where that would come from yep. and who owned the land or things like that. Whereas certainly for the, the you know, in the 17th and 18th centuries, as the commons becomes increasingly sold off in the UK and other places and yeah, you know, people are like the the Highland clearances in Scotland and the you know potato famine and things like that in Ireland. People are both unable to support themselves on their land because it's not their land. Like the potato famine happened because potatoes were really popular. They're a cash crop. Normally, farmers would grow a range of stuff that would keep their fa- families alive. And they were told, no, you can't grow that. You have to grow potatoes so we can sell them to England and we'll pay you and then you can buy food. Mm. And think, when the Yeah, I think there's also died. a problem where the lots got increasingly smaller as well and potato yes. was, a, was a crop that you could produce lots of on a small plot and if you're trying to generate calories – to feed yourself off a small lot, it was it was probably the best bang for your buck. Uh, I think. Yeah, hard to get a, a a small lot to feed you, but yeah, you know, I and and certainly for the people that were moving to the cities, mm. you know, many of them for the first time, you know, basically in the the history of their family, and they're looking for work, and they're like, you know, well, we can get work in factories, or we can get work work running errands or being a you know a domestic servant or things like that those people have no control over where you know their their labor or their their labor and they and i guess you could also say that for a lot of those people you know you're producing i mean i'm sensitive to this because i produce software that is so completely esoteric in relation to where i get my food from it's it's hard to feel like there's a further <laughs> distance between those two points. So I don't the, the the point that I want to meet on is that I feel like there's so, the, so I've seen it put this way. There's there are some people that believe that workers hate their jobs. And they will do everything possible to avoid them unless you pay them money and watch them like a hawk. Mm. And the and there is no innovate innovation or creativity from them. The the only thing they're interested in doing is avoiding work. And therefore you have to, as the manager, have to pro- provide the creativity and tell them what to do. Then there's the view that workers actually want contribute want to work want to do good things but the you know usually there are just a bunch of roadblocks in their path and if you you as a manager can clear them out then you get great great value and great performance out of them Mm. and there's definitely that feeling in in you know the dickensian time that you know that you talk about Mark starting out in that some of these people are producing silverware that or you know linen cloth that they could never ever afford to own. Mm-hmm. That it is that they are or 
you know, they are servants in an upper-class manner where they are never, ever allowed to have anything like that. And so class exists to to tell those people, no, you don't get to have that. You get to be down there or at this level. And as long as you can sneer on down on the people that are below you, you're, you're, so, and that's and that's a point at which it's really hard to feel like the work you're doing, you know, polishing endless knife blades to go on the silverware of the rich and famous is a worthwhile life, you know, mm. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. So Marx would say in your circumstance, because of globalisation, that it's the capitalist owner of whoever you work for is going to hire cheaper IT professionals from China or India or Philippines or somewhere like that, wherever they can, and that technology is going to improve and wipe out roles that normally required perhaps creativeness or or other human element to to sort of dumb down even more the work that people do and that there's this tension that capitalism has and even if your current employer is a really good group and don't want to do that, then some venture capitalist is going to come along and sweep up yeah, or, this company or, and, know, and run it along those lines. Is, is going to yeah. undercut us. Yeah, so like he's, he's big on the, the class tension. He's big on technology taking jobs away, people losing high-caliber jobs for lower-paying ones as a result and – the capitalist yep. always choosing the cheaper option at the expense of the worker, if possible. So that's a, yeah. a Marx's. That's know, a that's a Marxist approach. view, mm. and I which that's and, where I and and I guess yeah. cycling back to our very beginning in that Dickensian yes. image, he'd seen it happening where people were incredibly yeah. cruel to people, <laughs> and said that this is how it happens. And, and look. I would absolutely argue that we, you know, some of the horror stories of you know, the gig economy, the some of the horror stories of people being fired, you know, by a text message, you know, none of none of those things have really changed. Mm. I guess where I, I get where I'm wondering here is. It's always felt to me that Marx is picking on a particular behaviour and exaggerating that out to explain every part of it. And that's kind of the th that those two theories of, that's where I'm thinking of those two theories of how people want to work. And I would generally say most people are somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Mm -hmm. I'd, my, I'd quite happily browse, you know, Imager all day if no one, if, you know, if I, if I still got paid. But on the other hand, I really love my job and I'm really glad that I can contribute my knowledge and skill to, to make, you know, what yeah, I hope Mar is Marx, the IT industry a better place. Marx wouldn't doubt so somewhere your, in between Marx, those Marx wouldn't doubt your willingness to contribute. He's not critical of 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 the labor willing to to contribute. He's critical of the capitalists taking advantage of them. 
but I guess he is critical in the sense, critical of the proletariat in that he, it seems to me, he's saying that basically that they, they're, they're reduced to selling their labour power. It's as if that is somehow... Well, he says, yes, in, in meaningless, alienated jobs. So, right, and I guess I would yeah. I, I would wonder yeah. there whether, say, a Smith was a meaningless alienated job. No, he he would have seen tradespeople as having a a meaningful job. Sure, but, but a me, factory I, worker on a production line. Food at all? What's that? A, a Smith does not produce any food at all. No, he don't, they don't have to produce he food. He has to trade for food. Right? Yes, that's not so a, he doesn't produce. He doesn't have the means of production of food of his of sustenance. He yeah. has to bargain with it, and but, thus but, he is. But you know, that's where but, I'm critical but, of that yeah, overall but, view. But he talks about I'm I'm envisaging a Smith who owns his own workshop, if you like. And he is making right. stuff and selling it. That that Marx describes that as a valid endeavour, and that that person under capitalism, that the workshops disappear, it it becomes a factory, and that person who was in a community making stuff for the community ends up on a production line, banging rivets into something, or or a lot, you know. The, the horseshoes are made in a machine now rather than by hand. So he sees that yeah, alienation okay. as a as an issue. They don't have to be producing food to be, as he sees it, doing a job that they would get value from. But I'll just move on a little bit. Let me yeah, just sure. move on. Yeah. So there's a few a bit of terminology. The proletariat, so that's the class of the wage labourers. There's a lumen proletariat, which is lumpen. like uh, lumpen. Thank you. Vagabonds, beggars, prostitutes. There's the bourgeoisie who own the means of production, and there's the petite, petite bourgeoisie, petite, petite bourgeoisie. Now, this is an interesting one that he came across that he identified: those who work and can afford to buy little labour power, e.g., e. small business owners and trade workers. Marxism predicts that the continual reinvention of the means of production eventually would destroy the petite bourgeoisie, degrading them from the middle class to the proletariat. I think that's quite insightful. I mean, we all recognise it now, but maybe not so much in Marx's time, that, that people who, who were small business trade workers, the reinvention of the means of production would destroy that class yeah. and would degrade your, your them. Your example of the... Uh... The Smith yep. being replaced by a machine that can make yep. a thousand, you know, yep. horseshoes an hour. Well, the one I think of now is radiologists. Like apparently now, machine learning, sort of scanning of X-rays, has reached the point where it's more accurate than the human eye. Like tr- running these things through a program now yep. is reaching the point where you get a better, more secure result than a trained radiologist looking at the scan. So this is actually, well, so, okay, this is really interesting because 
On the one hand, there are also studies that have shown that radiologists are, are biased, for example, to find something. Right. Whereas an AI can look at, say, a healthy spine and say, there's nothing there. Yep. I heard a really interesting piece of res research, I can't remember where it was from, where they divided people with that came in for complaining to doctors of back pain. Half of them were sent for MRIs, half of them were sent for x-rays. On the basis of that, they looked at their overall health outcomes. And they were exactly, basically exactly the same. The people that had MRIs did not statistically get any better, like health-wise, they didn't improve health versus the people who had x-rays. But the people who got MRIs were four times more likely to have surgery. Right. Okay. So getting an MRI mm. means you're radiographer who's whoever's reading that is more likely to recommend you get surgery for it and you get surgery and it still doesn't cure your back pain mm. Mm. so that so on the one hand the you know the the radiographer i'm not i i like i'm not going to say that all radiographers are bad but i think that there are biases in human radiographers that it's possible to actually kind of remove out of the the AI system. But all of these things, like you know, even for the AI-assisted radiography, you don't go in to the doctor and he just sends it away to the AI and comes back with a result and you go, oh, okay, that's that's fine then. No, the radiographer checks it. Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's the possibility, because there's always the possibility the AI, AI has missed something that a trained radio, radiographer will pick up. Mm. And so what you get is the best of both. Mm. Um, I, I merely provided as an example of, of how technology can can take I'm, away I'm sorry to have a very yeah, well-paying job. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right in that, you know, there are, you know, pick, for example, the work of Translate. There's, you know, there's some brilliant and beautiful translation of, you know, books from one language to another. But if you imagine, you know, translating something like the works of Shakespeare just in through pure machine translation into a language like Spanish you we could probably say that a Spaniard would read that and go wait Shakespeare said this this doesn't make sense mm. because you know and that's something where that's probably putting a lot of trained translators out of a job just simply because we can throw machines at that now mm. so yeah yep so marx anticipated that sort of stuff so so that's sort of general what marx said obviously i've probably got some of it wrong but that, that's that's a general starting point now i want to move on to by the way we're going to split this episode <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. every Again, time you invite me 
Because yeah. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in Sydney week after next. So this this is going to be cropped out and put into that one. If you're listening in the chat room, if you're still there, yeah, it's going to be cut out on the podcast and then zipped across in a couple of weeks. All right. Yeah. Cultural... While you read, I'm just going to go to the loo again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, you do that. <laughs> yeah, you can't find good podcast hosts with strong bladders these days. Dear listener in the chat room. <laughs> uh, I was nearly going to do this solo. Joe just gave me a last-minute call and said he was working. I thought, oh, do I want to do that still solo? Hey, James, you're in the chat room. The week beginning Friday, the 5th of September, James. So, sorry, week beginning Monday the 5th. So it would be Friday the 9th of September, James. Are you able to meet at the usual place Friday night for drinks with the other, with the other Sydney patrons or anyone who's listening? If you are listening and you're in Sydney, I'm going to be there Friday night on the 9th of September. Yeah, that's it at your club. Get in contact and you can meet some interesting people. You can meet James. He's got a fantastic moustache, by the way. So you're still rocking the moustache, James. I'm just chatting to the – I'm just chatting with the chat room here. James is in the chat room and he's got a great moustache from memory. He also, James, right. I believe, has listened to every episode because when he eventually discovered the podcast, he – went through the back catalogue and listened to all of the old episodes, which on the one hand is a huge compliment, but he, did it, but he did it at like one and a half or double speed, which is quite insulting, James. But <laughs> You think he should have listened it to, at the original speed to put in the real effort? That's it. Nine and a half out of ten, James. <laughs> okay, cultural Marxism. Now, believe it or not, I reckon the best article I got on this was from Eternity News, strangely. Curious. Yes, really strange. So so it's an article that tries to explain cultural Marxism and it's going to be my starting point and I'll read a bit of this and see how we go. In the last decade or two, cultural Marxism has become something of a boo-hooray word in Western culture. That is... It's a term that provokes an almost visceral reaction of either disgust or delight, denunciation or celebration. From one perspective, the polarised reaction is puzzling. Cultural Marxism, also known as neo-Marxism, libertarian Marxism, existential Marxism or Western Marxism, is a well-established term in academic circles and has appeared in the titles of numerous books and articles that treat it either dispassionately or favourably. It seems to refer to a 20th century development in Marxist thought that came to view Western culture as a key source of human oppression. Otherwise put, cultural Marxism, Marxism is nothing more than the application of Marxist theory to culture. So why the commotion? The short answer is, due to its deployment by people like Jordan Peterson, Cultural Marxism has come to function. You didn't spit while you said that. No. Cultural <laughs> Marxism has come to function as shorthand for left-wing ideology. I think that's true. If you were listening to yeah. Holly Hughes and Senator Babbitt, Babel, whatever he was, there was definitely just cultural Marxism was shorthand for bloody left-wingers. For this reason, many on the left side of the contemporary culture wars not only hear cultural Marxism as an accusatory snarl word, snarl word, 
which it often is, but dismiss its validity. Others insist that it explains much that is taking place in our current cultural moment. So what are we to make of all this? Is cultural Marxism a misnomer? Is it anti-Semitic conspiracy theory? Or is it an accurate way of describing a real ideology that is making a very real impact on our world? So, to answer these questions, we begin with the Italian Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci. Born in Sardinia, 1891, to a working-class family. At age 22, he joined the Socialist Party, rose to prominence then in the Communist Party. After Mussolini had consolidated his power, Gramsci was arrested, charged with attempting to undermine the Italian state, thrown in jail, and he was released some eight years later in a very weakened state and died shortly afterwards. But while he was in prison for those eight years... He wrote a lot and he had a lot of time to think, I guess. So the prison notebooks, as they were called, have come to have a profound effect on subsequent generations. So while in prison, Gramsci turned his mind to the question that haunted classical Marxism. Why hadn't Marx's predictions worked out in practice? Why, for example, hadn't the Russian Revolution of 1917 replicated itself in other Western European nations. The answer, Gramsci believed, lay in the persistence of capitalist ideas embedded in the institutions of civil society, e.g. the family, the church, trade unions, education system. All the consensus-creating elements of society that are independent of political society so things like the police, the army, the legal system. So he said that this required a major rethink of Marx's philosophy. See, Marx was working on, if you remember, dear listener, that you've got to look at the, it's the economy, stupid, almost. What is the economy? Yeah. How is that structured? That is going to determine how the society and its institutions form. And Gramsci was saying well, what we've really got to do is change those institutions and then we'll be able to change the way of the means of production and the economy. So it was, that was the, the theory of, of Gramsci. And essentially people on the right are saying, this guy Gramsci and this conspiracy of taking over our institutions, our academic world, our political class, our, our name other institutions, turning them into left-wing rabble, that was this conspiracy recommended by Gramsci as a means to then, having got control of the levers of society and the society's oh, institutions... Right. See where you're going here. This yeah. okay. then at that point you can then change the means of production if you like. So, so that's what hmm. people talk about at one level of cultural Marxism is is really Gramsci's flipping of Marxism. It's kind of the opposite in a sense because Marx was saying economy drives the institutions. Gramsci was saying, well, that didn't work. I've spent eight years in prison thinking about it. The reason it didn't work was because 
the rich and powerful controlled the institutions and they therefore weren't going to change anything. So we need to control those institutions in order to change the means of production. And I have to say I would think it was both. You'd think, well, maybe, Paul, but that that is cultural Marxism as understood by many people is an almost Gramsci conspiracy to take over these institutions. Now, does this sound familiar to you at all? Does this, does this sound at all? Think of a group that wants to take over the institutions of society, maybe planting seeds of people who will do the right thing, maybe in seven yeah. mountains <laughs> at all. For those listeners that aren't enjoying the video feed, Trevor is smiling. <laughs> like, to, yes, this, it, to me. It, well, this because this is basically the, you know, like it's just projection. Of course the the right want to tell tell people how, like Holly Hughes wants to tell people how terrible it is that the Marxists are taking over their, our schools mm. because they want to take over our schools. Mm. That's where you're going, yeah? Well, well, if they're Christian evangelicals, they want to take over the schools. So I, I don't know. Yep. I'd have to look more closely. But it seems to me that the the Seven Mountains mandate where we have to seed people and take control of these seven critical factors of society was almost a copy of Gramsci's inversion of Marxist theory. So it was almost yep. a Christian version of cultural Marxism where they you've got two different groups recognising you've got to control the institutions if you want to control society. The means of production isn't going to change on its own and for Christians our moral sort of code isn't going to change on its own without controlling those institutions. Well, yes, the and but also the institutions won't change if the capital resists it. This is why, mm. for example, the Christian church, like the Catholic church, is a you know, a vast mm. money empire mm. because, you know, in part they have realised that they they can wield power using money. They do not give that away. Mm. But but these They're, things set culture. So our media and our political class, our education class, the, these people set the agenda and the culture. So yeah. I, I think... Gramsci is right. I think the Seven Mountains are right. It's a. It, I'm kind of reminded, though, here of I can't remember who said it, but the phrase that history has a left bias. That the ideas of equality and fairness, to you know, can't put a better word on it, tend to come through in the end, mm -hmm. and they are actively resisted by both the money who don't want to see their their loss of money and the powerful in the institutions who don't want to see their loss of power mm. and because i'm also kind of reminded like you know the list you gave there it's not really surprising that the 
the people who own media companies are also very rich people. And guess what? You know, we st we started the episode talking about how you know the Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch control a vast empire, which is also putting out an an ideology mm. about who to vote for and who is right and who is wrong in in mm. politics. If if you want an proletariat revolution, you're going to have to get control of these social institutions in order to inform and motivate and educate your proletariat to to revolt. So I'll just read a bit more yeah. of this article just so I can get through some of it. So, yep. so Gramsci believed that Marx was sort of back to front. Otherwise put, culture is not downstream from economics, but economics is downstream from culture. That's the Gramsci view. The significance of this inversion of classical Marxism is profound. What it means is that if you want to change the economic structure of society, you must first change the cultural institutions that socialise people into believing and behaving according to the dictates of the capitalist system. The only way to do this is by cutting the roots of Western civilization. In particular, it's now this is an article from Eternity. Remember, society. In particular, <laughs> it's Judeo-Christian values. For these, supposedly, are what provide the capitalist root system. In short, unless and until Western culture is de-Christianized, Western society will never be decapitalized. So in the Christian world, and you do see this with different Christian commentators, are very big on the cultural Marxism snarly word. As much as Sky and and uh, and the Australian and that, it, it's, a, it's a common word in Christian commentary circles because they see cultural Marxism as replacing the, the Christian backbone of society. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I'll just read on a bit. How might this be accomplished? By an army of Marxist intellectuals undertaking what was later called the long march through the institutions of power. That is, by gradually colonising and ultimately controlling all the key institutions of civil society. As Gramsci put it in the New Order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. So, so the key thing I reckon out of all this so far is that when people talk about cultural Marxism, it's actually Gramsci Marxism. It's actually kind of the yeah. opposite of Marx because Marx is all about the economy first, society second – Okay, there's a little bit of interplay between the two. But really at this point, cultural Marxism, insofar as it adopts Gramsci, is really already taken a long hike from where Marx was. I I think they're both aiming they're they're both aiming at the the same cause. They're they're, they're saying that the rich and powerful, that's just conflate those two for the moment want to keep the rest of us poor and profit off our labor and would dis displace us in a second if they could and in marx's terms the correct solution to that is revolution like armed revolution and in gramsci's case in Gram gramsci's view the correct solution to that is change the culture so that those people do not have power anymore. And 
I think Gramsci, like I would certainly say that Gramsci's plan there is better because revolution is usually bloody. And I, I, I'm not I, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. whether Gramsci denies a revolution. I'm not sure. I'd have to read more. It's possible he's saying yeah. that you control the institutions in order to create, allow the revolution. It can't happen without that. I'm not sure if he's denying a, still a revolution of sorts. I'm not sure. Well, okay. The, then, then the the difference we're talking about is between an armed revolution and a, if you'll for, forgive me for using the term, cultural revolution. No, 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 the difference is, Marx is saying it's the economy, and doesn't really pay attention to a takeover of the institutions. Gramsci is saying you have to take over the institutions, infiltrate. Well, I disagree there because I think Marx specifically talks about the things like the the legal system being part of the system of oppression. Mm. It it is, you know, I'm really kind of reminded as well in the time of Marx the that Parliament was pushed usually by the rich in in the UK to enact harsher and harsher penalties against property, like theft of property. Mm -hmm. And that's why Australia became a penal colony and that's why America became a penal colony. And then they realised that actually the Americans had a bit too much and they decided to revolt. You know, because though the law was being used to enact the will of the rich, Mm. the rich happened to also control things like the private schooling or the public schools as yep. the as I'm sure Joe would say the they controlled what was acceptable art and you know cartoonists like Hogarth who was published in papers were sort of considered barely acceptable because they mocked the rich whereas you know Turner and you know can't think of another with lovely word. little landscape scenes. Yeah, yeah, something you can you can or you know portrait mm. artists you know were all the rage because well everyone needs their own portrait done. Mm. So I I feel like Marx still recognizes those things as being driven. Like as as being used as means of oppression. Oppression. Absolutely, he does. Where and I, where I guess yeah. I would agree with your summary is that Gramsci thinks they come from the culture in which one exists, and Marx thinks they comes come from who owns the money that gets to say how things exist. Yeah, no. And I would say I, they're absolutely related. No, I don't think they differ on that. I just think they say <laughs> that Marx says, Gramsci says Marx didn't work, the revolution didn't happen. Why? Right. And yeah. it's because because the control of the institutions. So they derive in the same way. They don't deny – I don't think they deny – how these things I think he's ignoring the French Revolution. Who is? 
Gramsci, where the peasants did actually revolt mm. and managed to kill off a large section of the upper class. What year was the French and Revolution? Was trying to think. 17 somethings? Yeah. 1980 seems to be. It was 1891 he was born, Gramsci. Yeah. So, well, he's looking at. Be- because I, I, because I would also say that you know, even as as the thank so you, James says seventeen eighty nine. Yes, even as the nineteen seventeen Russian Revolution proved, you can have a revolt all your li- all you like, and what you do is swap one set of dictators for another, mm. because the whole system of Russian society accepted that there are people in power that are given ultimate authority and the rest of you bow down to them. Mm. And whether whether it's communism or Marxism, Leninism, or whether it's, you know, the czars, same process. Mm. Was the French Revolution a revolution against capitalism or more of a of a French monarchy that had... It was, a, well, it was a revolution against the French monarchy and the upper class who owned all the money mm. or owned all of the estate, you know, had the, the apocryphal let them eat cake attitude and kept the peasantry poor because they that basically, you know, kept them... In a perpetual state of needing money, you know, needing to work to produce money for the rich. Was was France in a industrialized state at that point in the French Revolution? Will we look? That's for no. homework. Let's 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 put that down for homework because I need to get through a little bit more. Yeah, but I take all your points there because that is a good point. Yep. Like if Gramsci says these revolutions don't work unless you control the institutions, then you could say, well, what about the French Revolution? So good point. But Gramsci was not alone in thinking along these lines, which brings us to the Frankfurt School. So the origins of the Frankfurt School can be traced to 1923, Frankfurt, Germany, a Marxist think tank and research centre modelled after the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow. So the early work was classically Marxist in its direction. But this all changed in 1930 when Max Horkheimer took over as director and moved it in a neo-Marxist direction. Hopefully at this point everybody's got an idea of classical Marxist and neo-Marxist. Traditional old-school Marxism as we call it. Yeah. Like Gramsci... Horkheimer was convinced that the major obstacle to human liberation was the capitalist ideology embedded in traditional Western culture, that fundamentally what was needed, exposing, criticising and changing. The aim was to produce a new synthesised form of Marxism that would do that job that classical Marxism failed to do, radically transform Western culture and so help pave the way for a communist utopia. So... Again, the Frankfurt School is talking about a new synthesised form of Marxism that classical Marxism failed to do. So even if you are a follower of the Marxist, of the Frankfurt School, you're kind of admittedly deviating away from classical Marxism. 
1933, Nazis came to power. Members of the Frankfurt School hightailed it to the United States, ended up in Columbia University, didn't return to Frankfurt till 1951. And what did they do at the Frankfurt School? What was their major achievement? And their major achievement was critical theory. (laughs) Glad we got to that point. A form of incisive... Now, this is not critical race theory in any way, quite separate, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, It's 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 where where critical race theory comes from. This is the thought. The chief collective enterprise of the Frankfurt School is the development of critical theory, a form of incisive social critique aimed at undermining the status quo in the hope of changing society for the better. Critical theory is opposed to traditional theory, which traditional theory is all about just explaining society. Critical theory is a essentially negative exercise. Let me just try and get the best summary of it here. I guess I would say critical theory is asking what is the best thing that we're looking at, not not a you know, so if, if we're looking at society. Traditional theory says, okay, well, how did that all come about? Critical theory says, okay, what of what of all of that is the best way? What what can we put together out of all of that that makes it the best society? I'll so give you a Wikipedia summary. Criticizing the good, you know, the things in our current society or current system in order to get to something better. Mm. So, according to Wikipedia, critical theory is not to be confused with critical thinking or critical race theory. Critical theory is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on critique of society and culture to reveal and challenge power structures, underlined. Mm -hmm. It argues that social problems stem more from social structures and cultural assumptions than from individuals. It argues that ideology is the principal obstacle to human liberation. So, so let me just get back to this article of sort of. I feel like what I said is kind of compatible with that. Yep. Not slightly an emphasis on structures. Yep. Let me just see here. So, assessing the work of the Frankfurt School is not simple. The school was neither uniform nor fixed in its views. But it did seem to have a clear and unwavering object, and that was to identify the economic and social structures that had been created by industrial capitalism and to critique the ideas that defended the disparities of class and race. The general consensus of the Frankfurt School members was that Western civilization was effectively responsible for all the manifestations of aggression, oppression, racism, slavery, classism and sexism that marked post-industrial society. And this author of this Eternity article says that was a simplistic and indefensible misrepresentation. So anyway, the Frankfurt School, critical of Western civilization, particularly concerned with looking at structures and... That was their contribution to Marxism, if you like. So still on this article, so there's a bit of a conspiracy theory then. There are numerous 
cultural Marxist conspiracy theories, especially surrounding the Frankfurt School. Some superficially plausible, others patently laughable. So, so th- this is again gets to where people of the right leaning sort of talk about this conspiracy of people to take over the institutions, remembering Gramsci was about that and remembering the Frankfurt School was about institutions. And I think the Frankfurt School had a few European Jews in there as well. And the idea of the Jews controlling the world and that being a bad thing and doing it secretly and wanting to oppose that, that's all very much sort of right-wing conspiracy, slightly anti-Semitic sort of stuff that's mm. quite appealing to some fairly ugly elements in society. So so some of this blowback against cultural Marxism will also be held in circles of sort of fascist right-wing flag-waving people, Paul, who are nationalist and very distrustful of things like a Jewish conspiracy cabal who are planning to take over the world. So, like, all these things probably at this stage are sounding very hazy, but a lot of it is hazy because there's lots of different people involved and and their thoughts are not always homogenous, mm. just like our Indigenous brothers. But, but, yeah, so that's all part of this cultural Marxism snarly world, the word, is mm. an element of anti-Semitism against a Jewish conspiracy. Take that into account as part of all this. Well, the one thing that I think is particularly notable about the the sort of Jewish, the anti-Semitic element there is that it's directed as a lot of anti-Semitism has been directed in the past at the Jews as a moneyed elite. But the, and the convenience there, I think, for the defence, to use anti-Semitism in the service of conservatism and, say, republicanism, is that it allows them to say oh, don't mind us with our $100 million or our billion dollars. You know, it's George Soros over there who's the real bad guy. You know, you think you're angry at, at you know, at billionaires like Donald Trump. Wait till you see what these guys are doing. And, it, you know, surprisingly enough, it never gets directed. You know, it, it it's never, like, it, it that, anti-Semitism isn't directed at the people in the same category, like the, it's, so how to put it, sorry, the people that are, the, you know, the, the, the non-Jewish billionaires uh, now have a way of pointing a direct, you know, you know attention away from themselves rather than accepting that like that they they'd be very quick to point out that it's you know, not all billionaires are jewish but it's the jewish billionaire that happens to be the one that you need to hate 
So, do, you know, do you see where I'm coming from? Well, you're, you're saying people are doing that or not? I I would say I, I I'm saying it would be a persuasive argument. I don't have any evidence that people are actually if, if you're, putting that. Okay, but if, if you're a Gentile billionaire and you're copping a bit of heat, you'd say, "Look over yeah, there, the Jew- Jewish billionaire, yeah. cultural Marxist, doing- cultural Marxist." Yeah. One final yeah. thing, I'm going to finish up. There's a last little article. So, is this an issue? Is cultural Marxism? I mean, I've quoted Holly Hughes and this other guy. There's an article from the conversation. Cultural Marxism is a term favoured by those on the right who argue that the humanities are hopelessly out of touch with ordinary Australia. The criticism is that radical voices have captured the humanities, stifling free speech on campuses. But is cultural Marxism actually taking over our universities and academic thinking? Using a leading academic database, I crunched some numbers to find out. Insofar as it goes beyond a fairly broad term of enmity, the accusers of cultural Marxism point to two main protagonists, Antonio Gramsci and the Frankfurt School of Social Research, two things we just talked about. So if there was a lot of talk about, if if the conservative anxieties about cultural Marxism reflected reality, we would expect to see academic publications on Marx, Gramsci, and the uh, what I say the the Frankfurt School, and you'd see more of that than libertarian, liberal, or conservative voices. So this person did a quantitative research on the academic database JSTOR, J S T O R, where all the academic mm-hmm. articles hang out. If you pay a fee, you can get to them. And uh, did a search tracking the frequency of names and key ideas in articles published between 1980 and 2019. And if you're a patron of this podcast, you can look at the show notes and in summary, guess what? There's not a huge number of articles about Marx or Gramsci or the Frankfurt School in comparison to other right-wing thinkers and philosophers. It's not like they're pumping out material left, right and centre so it's a furphy to describe this as a major takeover of academic circles, at least based on what papers they're producing from the universities. That's an interesting way of analysing it. Yeah, yeah. That's a, 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 a clever rebuttal that will appeal, appeal to the people that already believe that ad- academics are doing the right thing. Yes. The, I was also thinking when you're talking about that of an interview by uh, with a guy called Bo So, who is B-E-A-U-S-O. He, is, he has won the World Debating Championship. He's coached the Australian and Harvard debating teams. He's written a couple of books on debating and basically how we can learn from debating how to kind of argue better and get on better. Mm. And he was asked about that the sort of cancel culture and, you know, people being denied the right to, you know, debate unpalatable ideas at universities. And he said the one point that he said we should not debate on is the relative worth of other people. We can argue 
in debating all we like for the speed limit should be raised or lowered or that the immigration uh, rate in Australia should be raised or lowered or whatever. What we can't argue for is it, it, we, what we can't do is have a debate on, say, women are inferior species. And, for and, why, and, again. and why can't we have that debate? Because anyone on the... So to kind of make this example, if a woman is on the against team, then the four team part of the four teams argument is that that woman on the again the against team does not have the right to say that okay they're so, just not so, so, an inferior human being and they shouldn't even be on this debating team I, so uh, as a matter of so, debating principles of organization don't set up topics yeah. like that where there's going to be and, a personal reflection on a participant. Yeah. That makes sense. And the problem is that a lot of the, the – the point is that a lot of the people that are being cancelled by cancel culture and all that sort of stuff are people who are arguing that Jews or, you know, foreigners or whoever are not – equal people mm -hmm. and that's why the argument about them being debated on campus is invalid you know that, that we should not actually be it's like kind of saying you know if someone that was his justification for cancelling these people that was his reason why we shouldn't treat that the cancelling of those lectures as a kind of blow to free speech. Okay. Does that mean then we shouldn't have a debate on communism because in the one of the participants is a communist? No, because you're still unless you unless your argument is that I'm or So I think it really comes down to inherent traits, probably. So, yeah, if, so, if the so, if you can't have a debate about a topic that is refers to inherent characteristics that some people might have. Sure. But even, you know, say a debate that might take the topic that religion has no basis. Sorry. That's like you could debate religion has no basis in modern society. You can't debate people who believe in religions are flawed human beings. Okay, this is what he was saying as a his that, theories that on would, setting up debates. Yeah, so so when you know if if we had you know, and even then I would argue that the problem with a lot of those you know the the right wing people that have been cancelled, so to speak, and are all sort of you know oh this is cancel culture gone mad. They're not intending to have a valid debate where where you get given a side beforehand that you don't like randomly basically you get told whether you are supporting or against the motion and you have to debate it and then you debate it with someone of basically equal caliber 
and then you know an adjudicator or an audience decides they are these these events are one person standing up telling all of those people why they should hate the jews and there's no there's you know not, not even a pretense of there being a sort of counter example or you know let's hear you know there there's you know look i agree are, we don't want to hear bad ideas we don't want to promote yeah. just shit don't know about his yep. theories of because there might be someone in the audience who's, you know, of that characteristic. I don't know about that, but we just don't want to waste time. Like we, if somebody said, I'm a flat earther and I want to give a talk at the University of Queensland, like the university should say, piss off. Like we're not wasting our time. We're just not wasting time with you. So, yeah. Hey, let's just try and wrap up, Paul. So, so yeah, there we go. Cultural Marxism, I reckon, after going through that exercise, I feel better when I see cultural Marxism in a reference in our society at this point. If I see it from a one-nation politician in Parliament, I will think to myself, hmm, maybe a little bit of anti-Semitic sort of nationalism creeping in there, maybe that conspiracy-level thinking might be in there, don't know, but just flag it as a possibility. When I see Holly Hughes do it, I would think knows nothing about Marx, probably, knows nothing of the differences between classical Marxism and Marx and between neo-cultural Marxism and classical Marxism, just, just doesn't know. And I would often see it as some sort of attempt to shut down people using a a snarly word and saying cultural Marxist beware can be dismissed without further discussion. So, so yeah, feel free, dear listener, to fight back if you are a classical Marxist or, a, or, or whatever, but at least be, tell me your discussions. If you end up having a discussion with somebody about cultural Marxism as a result of this podcast at any time, if it happens – Next week or next year, just let me know. I'd be quite interested what happens. So, I I think it's a like on the one hand, I think you've done a great service to people by actually giving a good rounded summary of where these things come from and and how they're made up. I'd also encourage listeners to not fall for the 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 sort of not fall for the bullshit. Someone, you know, criticizing, you know, left, you know, education institutions as being too woke is just, it's just a snarl word. It's just a, a red flag. And we, we should, we shouldn't debate them on exactly what they mean by woke or exactly how does their, their policy mean their work. We should just say, no, you're just making that up to have an argument. Mm. Yeah, we should we should push back on people who say, you know, the the Marxists just want to, you know, teach their ideas in schools and say, well, you want to teach your ideas in schools. Mm. What are you, a right-wing conservative? So mm. you want to tell us your, you know, you want to you want to 
preach your religion, not their religion. And and that because you know it's 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 that bullshit problem, you know. We we end up debating whether or not the prop the, their stupid proposition is valid, rather than just at the outset outset saying no, that's a stupid proposition, and we're not going to debate it. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, dear listener, give me some feedback on that one. If you end up using any <laughs> of this stuff in a dinner party conversation, I would be I'd be keen to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> 